Uh, it's a book which, as you know, apart from the first three chapters, comprises some pretty uh, bizarre and haunting visions uh, describing uh, life in the end times. And now we've come to the end of the end times. It's wonderful that God, in his wisdom, has accommodated his word to his people, uh, not only in their different languages, so when they spoke Hebrew, God's word comes to them in Hebrew. When they're conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they speak the language of their conquerors, Aramaic, and we have sections of uh, the Old Testament in Aramaic. And then when Alexander the Great conquers them and they become part of the Greek Empire and subsequently the Roman Empire, Greek becomes the lingua franca. And in each uh, situation, in each century, God speaks to his people in a language that they can understand. But not only in different languages, also in different forms of literature, or genre is the technical term. So we have stories in the Bible, we have law, we have ceremonies, we have genealogies, we have poetry, we have proverbs, we have prophecy, we have biographies, we have letters, and we have Revelation. We have apocalyptic. And different parts of the Bible, I've discovered, different parts of the Bible appeal to different ethnic groups. The Jewish Christians to whom the Apostle John is writing, remember that, again, that, that apostolic division of labor of which we read in Galatians 2.9 where Peter and James and John give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, that they will go to the Gentiles, and Peter and James and John will focus on the Jews. And that's a very important verse for understanding the New Testament. So if James and Peter open their letters by saying they're writing to the dispersion we assume they're writing to, to Jews. And likewise, uh, these Christians that uh, John is writing to in the seven churches of Asia are not apparently operating under Paul's umbrella. They're not Gentiles. They're Jews, and that's confirmed by uh, so much uh, uh, in uh, the book of Revelation including the kind of book it is. The Jews were just as familiar with apocalyptic writing as we are with historical novels or science fiction or Jane Austen or Harry Potter. They are genres of literature that we are familiar with. But we know that the Jews 
uh, in the first century and for two centuries before were very fond of apocalyptic uh, writing. We have examples of it in the prophecy of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, but then after the voice of prophecy ceased 400 years before Christ with the prophet Malachi, we have a lot of literature that Jewish, pious Jewish uh, writers composed and much of it was in this apocalyptic form that we meet in Revelation. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946 revealed a number of books written in this apocalyptic style. So God has spoken to us in the Bible in many and various ways, as the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 1. God speaks to us today through the book of Revelation, but to understand it, we have to ask the question, what did it mean to the original recipients? It means to us, firstly, what it meant to them. And only when we've heard the message against their background can we apply it to our context. And this is, of course, true of all biblical books. Uh, in la last week, we read chapter 21, and that... Uh, glorious picture of what our final salvation looks like is continued in chapter 22 uh, verses 1 to 5 which clearly draws very much on Genesis, on Eden but also on uh, Ezekiel. So all the gruesome parts have been left behind uh, in the earlier uh, chapters. Satan, death and Hades have been thrown into the lake of fire uh, Christians are now at the end of the end times. They've been in the end times since the ascension of Christ. These Christian, Christians were living in the end times 2,000 years ago. And we are living in the end times until Jesus returns. Everything between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and his return in glory is known as the end times in the Bible. That's not the way the term is used uh, very often by popular preachers. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth back in 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. God's dwelling place is now among his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, 21, 1 to 4. Well, what a different world that will be. We struggle to imagine it. What is our world like? Recent newspaper headlines describe it. Brexit. Turmoil erupts. Putin to pounce on divided Europe. ISIS suicide squad bathes Istanbul in blood. Sumatran fires threaten toxic haze for Southeast Asia. Masked anarchists clash with racist thugs in Melbourne. Computer hackers overwhelm secure websites. Black market, black market in body parts. Perth man prostitutes his daughter. 
This is the world we know. Although we are remarkably sheltered here in Australia, have been to this point. A world of pain and suffering, of flood and famine, of greed and injustice, of lawlessness and war, of pollution and death. The whole creation is groaning, the Apostle Paul says, waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption, Romans 8, 28. But, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. The sequence of seven graphic visions in this book of Revelation portray that renewal and restoration that God has promised in the Old Testament. Jesus' death and resurrection brings not only individual forgiveness and eternal life, but a renewed universe, a new Eden. But more than that, as we read chapter 21 and 22, 1 to 6, just as our resurrection bodies will be continuous with our present body, but transformed, as was the body of Jesus himself, so the new creation will be real and physical, not vague, ghostly, formless, anemic, but solid and perfect. Everything in the new, new heavens and the new earth is perpetually new and perpetually satisfying. Now, many of us struggle to imagine heaven, or more accurately, the new heavens and the new earth. Are you worried, for instance, that it might be somehow less real and less enjoyable than what you presently experience? Then remember that the new world that God has promised comes from the mind of the same creator who gave us the Niagara Falls, Ayers Rock, the Bungle Bungles, so many places, Ningaloo Reef, Grand Canyon, so on. And if there is so much beauty in a world that is fallen and spoiled by sin, imagine what God's new creation will be like. Language is unable to describe it. Our language derives from our experience, and no one has had that experience of the new heavens and the new earth. But God in his mercy prepared Israel with the experiences, the institutions, the ceremonies and the prophecies that foreshadow the wonderful reality that he has prepared for those who trust him. God himself will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. God himself will dwell with him. That's the essence of the covenant God made with Abraham. And we can now see how the whole history of God's covenant is fulfilled and how every aspect of the hope of Israel, covenant, redemption, inheritance, temple, Messiah, New Eden, is woven into God's purpose to rescue a people for himself. And John's final vision of the beauty and the grandeur and the radiance of the new garden city is magnificent. 
and we have that prospect of unimpeded fellowship with our gracious uh, creator. Well, that's a high point, verse 5 of chapter 22. And we might ask the question, why doesn't John stop there? Having reached that lofty height of the, the, the new Jerusalem or the new heavens and the new earth or the bride of the, all the images are used to describe the same, uh, the same uh, destiny that we have. Well, the final passage that we read this morning, from, particularly from verses 6 onwards, is fairly pedestrian by comparison with what has just been described. Why does John not stop with that stunning heavenly vision? Answer, because John's readers have to come back down to earth. The glimpse of the victory of the Lamb, the victory that the Lamb has already won, and of the believer's glorious destiny has been given to comfort and encourage these Jewish Christians struggling to be faithful in an evil age in which they face false teaching and persecution from unbelievers, especially from fellow Jews. We read they're the main persecutors in the New Testament are fellow Jews who don't believe. And then increasingly as we read through Revelation the Roman state begins to loom. The hostility of the Roman state is coming and of course will culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this down-to-earth epilogue, these last few verses, parallels the first chapter, the prologue of the book. It applies the visions to the lives of the Christians in the seven churches who are being addressed. Three points of application. Firstly, verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. And that's repeated in 16 and 20. These words are the testimony of Jesus himself. No other New Testament book claims this direct authority of Jesus. Verse 16. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with a testimony for the churches. This final chapter then recapitulates the opening chapter of the book and the opening scene of the risen Christ ruling in the midst of his churches by his word and spirit. In the gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Buddha never made such a claim. Muhammad never made such a claim. Revelation says Jesus is the faithful witness and everyone must face Jesus' claim to absolute truth. Why do many intelligent people, otherwise intelligent people, reject Jesus? Some of you remember a debate in Perth a couple of years ago between the professor of biology at Oxford, Richard Dawkins, and the professor of mathematics and history and philosophy of science, John Lennox. The first one did not believe in an eternal God. He believed in eternal matter, but he would not believe in an eternal God. 
Professor John Lennox believes the Bible. Well, why? Why do many not believe? Well, the Bible says we are a fallen and rebellious people and incapable by nature of perceiving the truth. Well, you might then ask, why do any believe in Jesus? The Bible says it's only because of the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in opening people's minds. And we cannot probe beyond that, beyond the sovereign work of God in people's lives. But we must pray for faithful preachers of the gospel in our land and in our diocese. And we must pray for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, beginning in our own families, amongst our own loved ones. Here in 22 verse 7, Jesus pronounces his blessing on those who believe and keep his words. Behold, I am coming quickly. Uh, some translations have soon. The word is, the adverb is quickly. It's the opposite to slowly. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Secondly, Jesus warns, verse 10, do not seal up the words. In the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel has been told to seal up the visions. And this was also the case in the other uh, non-biblical apocalyptic works. They always have to seal up the visions. The secrets cannot yet be revealed. But in Revelation, the seven seals are broken. The truth is revealed. So Jesus says, do not seal up the words. The gospel must be published. The consequences are great. There is no room for complacency. The consummation of all things is at hand. Whether it's by our own inevitable death, and some of us are getting closer perhaps than others, or by the return of Christ in glory, there will be no opportunity to change our minds. Verse 11 says, let him who is doing wrong continue to do wrong. It means that the opportunity to repent will be gone. Uh, brothers and sisters, this gospel can wonderfully unite people. I trust you experience that in this congregation. People from different backgrounds who normally would not have anything in common in Christ discover there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. That's one of the wonders of the gospel that uh, we've had the privilege of experiencing in three or four completely different cultures, having fellowship with people completely whose background and style of life is completely different from ourselves. But we come to have a wonderful fellowship. There is a wonderful unity in the gospel of Christ. But this gospel is also a great divider. Jesus says in verse 12, I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Our works cannot save us. 
By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But good works are the evidence of our faith. Then the final warning in verses 18 to 19 is not to add or subtract from the words of this prophecy. Because the situation is we're all tempted to pick and choose what is congenial for us and to fudge on those things that are hard or that conflict with our cultural norms. But these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. To change them in any way is to reject his claim over us as Lord. Do not seal up the words. Thirdly, lastly, note the encouragement. Remember John is writing to a persecuted minority of Christians in the Roman province of Asia Minor, western Turkey. He underlines the blessings that are theirs in Jesus Verse 12 to 14, see, I am coming quickly. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And again in verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty say, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Reminded of the Jesus' words to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. This last chapter, like the first chapter, focus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. As I said last week, some people read the book of Revelation to understand current events in the Middle East and uh, particularly the future of the state of Israel. Their focus is on the earthly Jerusalem that Paul says is in slavery with her children. Their focus is not on the heavenly Jerusalem, which Paul says is free and is our mother, Galatians 4.25, compare Hebrews 12. I once inherited a congregation in the northwest that had to be challenged on this issue because they spent their whole time reading Old Testament prophecies. They divided the congregation into 12 tribes, Dan, Naphtali, Simeon, Issachar, and so on. The whole 12 tribes of Israel, the congregation was divided into those 12 tribes. And they kept the Jewish feasts, and every two years they sought to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, each time I went, I would preach, they would fire questions, I would seek to answer their questions. But finally I had to challenge them, you've got to choose Jerusalem or Jesus. Jerusalem or Jesus. So we must not look for things in Revelation that would have had no meaning to the original readers a book that uh, one of you borrowed from me last week, sees the rise of ISIS as uh, being foreshadowed in the book of Revelation. Well, of course, God has some purpose in the rise of ISIS. I don't deny that. 
I don't know what the purpose is. It may be to judge us because we're so wishy-washy. I don't know. Because it's not been revealed. It's one of the secret things. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we focus on the things that are revealed. This closing chapter focuses our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It assures us of his coming and that should invigorate us. It reminds us of his greatness. It encourages us to persevere in difficult times and to go on and to enter into that city and to enjoy the inheritance that he has prepared for us. Verse 14. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is a striking testimony to the divinity of Christ because these words are used, the same words are used to describe God in chapter 1. The Lamb is one with the Father and the Spirit and yet the Lamb is not the Father. The Lamb is not the Spirit. God is one and yet three. We are confronted by the eternal mystery of the Trinity. We simply have to bow to what God has revealed about himself. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus must be our focus. We must not be distracted from him in our reading of Revelation and, above all, in our daily lives. Revelation ends by repeating Jesus' promise Surely I am coming quickly. Can you join with John, with faithful Christians down through the ages of every tribe and every tongue and every nation in saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.